Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to do another one of our movie episodes. We try and do one of these roughly every month or so. Sometimes we skip a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, when Halloween comes around, there's liable to be a little bit more uh, movie-centric conversation as we use uh, fictional properties as a way to sort of springboard uh, onto scientific discussions, mm-hmm. to discuss topics we've discussed in the past in a slightly different light, or to explore topics that you know we might not otherwise get into in a full-blown episode. I noticed you just said disgust, and today's episode will involve a, a different spelling of disgust. Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, because we're going to be talking about David Cronenberg's 1986 uh, remake of The Fly. Now, this uh, this is a movie I, I rewatched it a couple of years ago, as I recall, and you rewatched it last night. Yep. And uh, I think it's fitting that we're we're doing this. We're recording this sh- shortly before Valentine's Day, and it is coming out in the week following Valentine's Day. Uh, here you go, everybody. This right. is essentially our Valentine's episode for the year. The worst date movie of all time. <laughs> yeah, it is not a. It, it has romance in it, I guess. Some splashes yeah. of romance, uh-huh. but uh, it is ultimately a a, a tragic film, uh, uh, an an icky film, a monstrous <laughs> film. Uh, it is a film that is not about making you feel good about yourself, <laughs> per se. No, it's a thorough. I mean, I, I love the movie too. It's a it's a great horror movie, but it is just a, a deeply grimy experience at every level. It has like, uh, it has like like physical textural sliminess, mm-hmm. uh, but it also has really slimy behavior by certain characters. Yeah, it is a thoroughgoing exploration of slime. It's like you know both hands into the slime bucket up to the elbows, just rooting around in there. Yeah, th- this film and, and other films from David Cronenberg are often referred to very loosely as, as body horror. Uh-huh. And I tend to sort of recoil from things that are labeled body horror because sometimes, at least in my experience, uh, that label is sometimes given to work that is maybe a little a little bit more crude for crude's sake, or for it's like all about gore shock. focus. Yeah. yeah, or it's about shock value, or you know, it's mm. very um, you know melt movies. Yeah, I've been you know, I like a good melt movie, but but I do have to say, like this this film, and I think the the other films of Cronenberg that fall under this uh, this categorization, they tend to be films that are not just about like the visual exploit of of body and horror, but they get into the the, the metaphorical domain of body horror. Yeah, a lot of Cronenberg's work, whereas most horror would be about th- uh, you know threats to your life, like something wants to harm you and it's chasing you, and mm-hmm. you have to get away from it. Uh, most of his horror is about the threat of having your identity corrupted. It's yeah. the threat of being transformed into something that is no longer you. Yeah, and of course, this film has it in spades. So, before we we jump into further discussion, let's uh, well, first of all, let's go ahead and say yes, we will be talking about this film with spoilers. So, if you have not seen <laughs> David Cronenberg's 1986 film The Fly, and you would like to do so unspoiled, now's a good time to pause the podcast and go out and do that. Uh, But for the rest of you, yes, we will be discussing uh, full spoilers for this film. So let's take a quick break to hear just a taste from the original trailer. There is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown and reformation is inherently purging. (laughs) 
where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. You know, there's another original and remake pair that I often think about uh, alongside the the 1950s fly with Vincent Price, and then the is it Vincent Price? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And the uh, and and the Cronenberg remake is the thing. Yes. You know, it's a very similar thing. Like uh, Howard Hawks, the thing in the 1950s. It has one kind of vibe, and it is substantially reimagined by the time Carpenter does it in 1980 or whatever it was. Yeah, and in both cases, you see the remake reimagining it to the degree that the the remakes become like the the, 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 the standing examples of the work. Uh-huh. But uh, they're, they're both stories about transformation. They are, yeah. Though the, uh, in both cases, the later versions made the transformation much more disgusting. Yes. So uh, so let's yeah let's let's back up a little bit about uh, just the origin of the fly because it, it also parallels the thing in that just as the thing the original uh, motion picture was based on a pre-existing uh, uh, work of fiction mm-hmm. the same is true of the fly the 1958 film the fly which was directed by Kurt Newman with a screenplay by future best-selling author James Clavell of Shogun fame. This was based on a short story by George Langelin. George Langeliers. Yeah, boy, if you like, which was published in a June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine. Okay. And I had to look it up. I was curious, like, what, did, like, what is the presentation like in the original um, uh, uh, issue of Playboy magazine? And it, indeed, it's pretty impressive because you have on, uh, on one side, uh, on one page, you have the, just the text of the fly, mm-hmm. uh, no illustrations. And then on the other page, it's all white except for just a, like a blank page, except in the top left-hand corner, there's a single fly on the page. Like to scale, a yeah. real-sized fly. Yeah, whereas, you know, when you look at a picture of it, you, you could easily assume that there's just a fly on that particular Playboy magazine. It's a nice touch. Now, as you mentioned, the film uh, starred Vincent Price as the inventor of a matter transporter device called the Disintegrator Integrator, uh, which is not as catchy as Telepod. Uh-huh. So, but and so he's you know he's working on this device and of course he tests it out. Things go horribly wrong when a fly ventures into the transporter with him, and he emerges with, uh, as two different creatures: a human with the head and arm of a fly, and a fly with the head and arm of a human. Now, in the original movie, I'd say the most iconic scene is when the smaller version, the the fly sized body with the tiny Vincent Price head on it, mm-hmm. uh, gets stuck in the spider's web and yeah. starts screaming, "Help me!" Uh, but I remember thinking when I saw this original movie, like, okay, so he's got a human head, but, like, it's to scale. It's a fly-sized human head. That wouldn't possibly work. He wouldn't be able to fit all the, like, human neurons <laughs> into the brain of that size. His brain wouldn't work anymore. Well, as we'll continue to discuss with Cronenberg's uh, version, the computer that is powering teleportation is really advanced. It's yeah. just a godlike machine. And it likes to roll the dice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, in the original, much like the remake um, – uh, the, the creature has to struggle to maintain its humanity, ultimately fails, and then there are tragic results. Mm. Now, this uh, now David Cronenberg's remake uh, is going to be the main thing we're talking about here, his treatment of it. Cronenberg was, of course, coming off of um, success with Videodrome and also an adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. Scanners too, right? Uh, well, Scanners have been before that, but these two had come out uh, the same year, a couple of years prior. Oh, Okay. 
Uh, but yeah, Scanners was out by that point. He had established himself as this um, this new and signature voice in horror. The king of bad feelings. <laughs> yes. Uh, the screenplay was by Cronenberg and an individual by the name of Charles Edward Pogue. It famously stars Jeff Goldblum as uh, Dr. Seth Brundle. Uh, a tour de force. Oh, the, yes. Yeah. Like maximum uh, gold blooming in this, but also gold blooming to uh, just a perfect degree. Like it, mm-hmm. it plays to all his strengths as a performer. Uh, also, Gina Davis stars in it as uh, Veronica Quaif. And then John Getz plays his character named Stathis Barons. Who's the ultimate sleazebag. <laughs> in a film full of people that are that are oftentimes, if not exclusively, sleazy. The sleaze on him in this movie is so thick. I remember after – this was like the first movie I saw with John Getz in it. And when mm-hmm. I saw like Blood Simple and other movies he was in after this, it, like the stank wouldn't come off of him. <laughs> like it stuck on the actor. Oh, yeah. I often forget that he was in Blood Simple. Uh-huh. Uh, which which character did he play in that? He's like the, the main dude in it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I often forget he's about a, him. He kind of like Francis fades. McDormand's boyfriend. Ah, yeah. there you go. Okay. I do need to watch Blood Simple again. That is a great film. I know it's not fair. I should not hold this this character's flaws against the actor. <laughs> I mean, John Getz is great. But that's, that's the sign of a great performance when you, you just kind of dislike the um, the actor as well because uh-huh. of what their, uh, their their character did or how their character came off. So uh, the basic plot in the 86 remake is the same. Um, uh, This time it's uh, Dr. Seth Brundle. He's uh, working on these telepods and uh, he, of course, ends up uh, experimenting with it. He decides to to just uh, screw it. I'm going to get in the pod. I'm going to perform a a little um, self-experimentation here and a fly ventures into the pod with him. Biology is scrambled. Uh, Humanity is lost. Things end up tragically for monsters and men alike. Uh, but then there are a lot of key differences in this adaptation. We've touched on some of them already, like the idea that it's it's less about the monster you become, but the journey towards monstrosity, the change, uh, the monstrous change as opposed to the monstrous destination. Well, yeah, and the film spends a decent amount of time stuck in the middle with uh, Jeff Goldblum's character gradually becoming more and more – less human and more fly. Yeah. Uh, and, and being able to – like having metacognition on this, like realizing what is happening to him and being able to react to it still as partially the man he once was. Right. And then, of course, when he first emerges from the telepod, not only does he feel whole and intact, but he feels improved. He feels... Uh, you know, more alive than he did previously. He starts doing gymnastics and yeah. stuff. Uh, but he also becomes a jerk. Like when he gets out of the – the thing that I can't get out of my head is when he gets out of the telepod, he's like somebody on cocaine. Yes. You know, yeah. like he he's like, I'm a god. I'm amazing. Yeah. And, and hey, you've got to try this too. Let's try it right now together. Let's do this. You yeah. Know? And I think that's one of the great things about the transformation in this film is that you can – you can apply it to so many other real-life um, changes. Like you can easily uh, take this model and compare it to, say, uh, the, the impact of drug addiction, mm-hmm. uh, like, like we just mentioned. Uh, later, as he begins to uh, transform physically, you could compare that to vari- the ravages of various diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, you could even compare it to just the, um, you know, the wear and tear of age. Uh, there, there are so many different things you could compare it to, uh, and it, it opens itself up to those Comparisons. I'm not saying it's meant as a direct allegory, but no, I, think, no, no. I, I think I think drugs are a very good comparison because yeah. like because it starts off with this euphoria and this sense that things have never been better. I'm better than I've ever been. Life is better than it's ever been. And then there's the decline. Yeah, things uh, ca- it catches up with him. To there's denial about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So like you said, there's a lot of um, psychological change, a lot of meta-analysis of like what's going on in him trying to understand what's happening to himself. Because at first he has no idea that that a fly has been merged with his uh, his being at like the, the, the most basic level. And then another, uh, another, I think one of the most horrifying changes in a film that is full of horrors. Uh, we're not even touching on some of the minor things that are thrown in like inside-out baboons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But uh, – Towards the end, as he's almost completely monster, he relates to Veronica that he has a solution in mind, and that is that she and her unborn child and 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 him, the Brundlefly, should climb into the telepods together and then merge themselves into a single perfect being. Right. He decides, oh, I'm I'm wasting away because there's too much fly in me. Mm-hmm. Like I went in just me and fly. And now I'm going to be 50-50 when this process finishes. And he's like, if I get some more humans and then merge me with them, then I can be something like, you know, 70, 80 percent human. And that's just enough fly. Right. And, of course, this is the predominantly fly brain thinking. This is the, you know, he talks about like the absence of politics and in insect culture and so forth. But it's it's such a horrifying solution because it makes sense. He's making sense. But it, you, it, it's just unspeakable horror to imagine what this final form would be if he's able to carry this out. Mm-hmm. And unlike the case with him merging with the fly, this would be presumably merging two conscious sentient people. I don't know what is what is being assumed about like if you tried to m- like fuse two humans together, what the resulting brain or mind state would be like. Well, it's it's one of these things that it, depending on how you would look at that basic concept, it's either horrifying and it's the, it's the destruction of self, it's the invasion of self, but it also, you could look at it as beautiful, right? Because this is what we often talk about love in this case, right? <laughs> two people becoming one. The, yes, he tries to talk about it in those terms, yeah. and obviously Gina Davis uh, does not see it that way right. for quite understandable reasons. But of course, she hasn't been through the uh, through the plasma pool, so she doesn't. She how could she understand, right? I know this is one of your favorite things about the movie is this the plasma pool rant, right? Yes, it's in one of the cocaine style scenes where Jeff Goldblum is. It's it's in the early days after he's been through the pod. He thinks he thinks I'm not wasting away. He thinks I'm a god. I'm amazing. I can do anything, and he he's lashing out at anybody who doesn't want to get in the pod and try it for themselves. Yeah, he gets very vindictive about it, especially with um, uh, with Veronica. Uh, like one of the quotes from that, that lengthy uh, diatribe is, you're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid <laughs> to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? Which again ties into this, this the whole theme of the, the film, this idea of transformation is it's something we all want, but but at the same time, um, the reality of it can be can be horrifying, can be scary, can be frightening or horrifying. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will start uh, we'll start throwing a little bit of science at this thing. All right, we're back. Now, I would say that the ultimate. Uh The premise of the movie – this is not hard sci-fi. This is not something that, uh, you know, may may be plausible. We just don't have the technology yet. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And as we we talk about this aspect of the film and sort of like nitpick the – (laughs) <laughs> you know, the various aspects of teleportation. Please understand that we're not criticizing the film. We, sure. are, we are using the film to uh, to explore some topics, and we thank the film for being able to, uh, uh, you know, to inspire us. So. Oh, sure. It's a horror science fantasy. It's yeah. there, it's there to, uh, to, to raise certain ideas about humankind, not to critique the specific capabilities of real technology. Right. 
uh, you know, it's not really a parable about teleportation. Right. Of course, uh, the big mishap that occurs in all of this is that the, the fly manages to zip into the telepod with Brundle and the computer, not anticipating an additional organism, incorporates that organism into Brundle at the molecular genetic level. That's what it says. Yeah, yeah. He's, he says uh, – he's like, in my rush to create a, a telepod, I accidentally created a gene splicer as well, a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's extremely uh, good. Again, just uh, the, the computer powering this thing mm-hmm. is as incredible as it is inept. Yeah. Um, and it, even in its ineptitude, it manages to achieve uh, uh, you know, really godlike effects. Uh, but one of the funny things I, that I remember thinking watching this movie is, wait a minute – Okay, so it's saying human goes in, fly goes in, thing comes out that'll be 50-50 human and fly. Mm -hmm. If you're going to work on that basis, if you're just like comparing, well, what kind of genomes are in here? There's a bunch of other stuff in there that's not human either. I mean, did he sterilize the inside of the telepod before he went in? I should hope so because a baboon exploded in there, right? (laughs) Yeah, so of course there's going to be stuff on the, you know, walls inside the – I mean, there's life everywhere. Yeah. But then more than that, there's also going to be stuff that he can't sterilize because it's going to be in him and on him. That's right. And this should come as no surprise to regular listeners of the show because we've discussed the microbiome quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, because there's a, there, were, there would have been a lot more than two life forms in there um, because none of us are 100% human, not by a long shot, because we contain vast populations of bacteria, archaea, and fungi that are collectively known as the microbiome. In fact, the average human has roughly 30 trillion microorganisms living on and within them, enough to weigh – and this is, this is am- amazing to think about – roughly a half pound of non-human life. So just, ima- just imagine this scenario. If you were to step into telepod A – and then telepod, and then and then you were going to uh, you know zip into telepod B and C, with human emerging from C, and then all your microbiome uh, just left in a pile in pod B. That would be a half pound of stuff. Yeah, I mean roughly, yeah, roughly, but yeah, yeah and maybe what like a, just by cell count, it's going to be. We don't know exactly, but the estimate is something like equal numbers of cells or maybe a two-to-one or something. Yeah, it's staggering when you look at some some of these numbers. Um, uh, These numbers that I'm reading here, by the way, come from a January 2020 uh, Simons Foundation article titled, You're Not All Human, The Wonder of Gut Microbes. They also point out that we're talking an average of 150 different species of bacteria alone within the average person, and that's out of 6,000 possible species worldwide. The human genome contains 20,000 genes, while your microbiome contains 3 million genes. So uh, I got another wrinkle to okay, add, too. Let's hear it. Okay, so it wouldn't just be your microbiome and the fly, but it would also be the fly's microbiome. Yeah, I, we did, <laughs> I didn't even get figures for that. Uh, there are also there are parasites that, that live on and prey on flies. Yeah, you've got those as well. That's assuming that uh, Brundle himself does not have some sort of a parasite. And we don't know what he had for dinner. He might have had a bad uh, you know, pork sandwich or something. Oh, no. You go in there with trichinosis and yeah. then it fuses you with the worms. Yeah, because, I mean, he's... I mean, I mean, he's certainly living a bit foul up in uh, that uh, that loft later on, but it's yeah. not exactly pristine either. It's like the the, the work abode of um, you know of, of an obsessed scientist, right? Sorry, I was just looking up the names of some fly parasites. Oh, yes. There, there are some great ones. Uh, one that I was seeing referenced in a lot of research is called Spelangia cameroni perkins. Perkins, okay. Perkins, the Perkins parasite. 
So you get a bit of that in there too. All right. So you have all this stuff uh, potentially in the telepod with uh-huh. Brundle, with this uh, even this fly thrown in the mix <laughs> as well, and the computer that is managing this this transport of uh, of uh, the individual and the individuals across the room to the other telepod or the other telepods, uh, you know, it's having to handle all of this information on top of just the, like the basic atoms, something like uh, a trillion trillion atoms or more. Yeah, I, this is another thing that I mean. If we want to get serious about teleportation for a second, I, I would <laughs> argue that it, it is essentially impossible. Right. First of all, the, the amount of energy that it would take to disassemble your body and then reassemble it in another place is just unfathomable. Right. Um, but uh, but also, like, how would the information be managed? It's too much information to sample and keep track of. Mm-hmm. I think teleportation, I'm sorry to say, is just not a technologically feasible proposition, even in the distant future. Right. Of course, if you watch enough science fiction about it, you probably feel pretty okay about that because, right. because teleporter mishaps – uh, they kind of compose one of my favorite like subgenres or sub subgenres of science fiction. Uh-huh. Like I'm a big fan of Stephen King's The Jaunt. Oh, that's which, a great uh, one. Yeah, which is a different take and maybe in some ways a more possible. I don't know. It's a different take on it for sure that mm-hmm. we that would require a different episode to break down the the science of. We shouldn't spoil that one, but that that is a great horrifying short story. Yeah. Uh, the other one I I think of is in Spaceballs when the guy gets oh. his his butt on his front. <laughs> it gets the bottom half of his body backwards. Oh man, I yeah. I haven't seen Spaceballs in a very long time, so I forgot all about that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, you find example Star Trek. Of course, you had had regular use of teleportation technology, and occasionally would explore mishaps in interesting ways. But even if it's not malfunctioning, I mean, I think something that is at some point explored on Star Trek. I don't. And I've I've heard they get there at some point of people contemplating the fact that what's really happening every time you are teleported is that you die. Yes, and a new version of you is created. So it's like your consciousness does not survive the process. You are disintegrated. And then there's just a copy of you, and yeah. that that copy of you goes on with your business. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's a an episode of the like '90s reboot of The Outer Limits that explores this as well. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's a whole other side to it too. Yeah, the idea that every time you teleport, you die. Yeah. But then I guess again, on the other hand, every time you teleport, you're reborn. Uh, sure. Well, it might be great for the version of you that's reborn, but that's not that doesn't get to be you. You're done. Yeah. Well, well but you know, he was annihilated down to the <laughs> last atom. So, uh, you know, he he was completely recycled. So anyway, just just contemplating like the sheer number of life forms that would have been in that telepod, I think, is just a, a, a fun, um, you know, intellectual exercise mm-hmm. and, and also creates all sorts of new horrible scenarios. Like, indeed, what if you weren't just merging a fly and a human together into one being? What if it was all of those things? What if it was just it's cut the fly out, the flies mm-hmm. shoot out of the pod before it goes off? What if it's just Brundle and his microbiome, all the occupants of the microbiome being fused into one life form? Yeah, Brundle hyphen E. coli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, plus, plus everything else. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, I, I, again, I, I love just trying to imagine what that would consist of. Now, here's another uh, question that I think comes up. Uh, There's, of course, when when he's trying to figure out what happened Mm -hmm. uh, in the movie, he's asking the computer in that wonderful way that, like, uh, 1980s computers functioned in science fiction where you could just have conversations with them. Yeah, they're just a natural language uh, input and and response system. You know what movie also does that? 
The Thing. Oh, yeah. Do you remember in the remake of The Thing when Wilfred Brimley is, like, asking questions of the computer? He's like, how long before all humans on Earth are infected? And it's like, it gives him a time frame, and then he gets the idea. He's like, well, we're not getting out of here. That was used in uh, Alien as well. Remember, uh, was it Mother that they would have uh, conversations with? That's right, yes. See, this is what I want to see come back in science fiction. I want to see computers like that where people type in questions and they're given answers right there on the screen. But the answers are a little stilted. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not perfect, but yeah, it's natural language for some reason. Yeah. So when, when he asked uh, about what happened, he looks into it, he sees, okay, there was a fly in there. And then he asks, was the, the fly absorbed by Brundle? And then the computer says, no, uh, they were merged. Uh, or fusion. something fusion, yeah. something to that effect. Uh, but it makes me wonder. Okay, what if you had Brundle get into the telepod, and he goes from telepod A to telepod B, and in the process, maybe the, I guess the microbiome wasn't factored into the equation. Mm-hmm. And what if the microbiome is annihilated, shot over to another pod, or somehow absorbed in a way that makes it completely go away, and you just have Brundle, one hundred percent human, coming out on the other end? What would that be like? Well, he would not be the only organism that's ever been through this. In fact, this is a condition that's sometimes used in the lab to study the effects of the microbiome. Uh, I think we've talked on the show before about uh, research using, for example, germ-free mice. Yeah. Uh, This is sometimes called uh, notobiosis or notobiotic conditions where it just means like when you have control and knowledge of all of the life forms living within one larger life form. And often control and knowledge of that would mean that there are none in there. Um, So, yeah, you can create germ-free mice that have no microbiome. They're sterile. They're just mice. There is no bacteria. There's no archaea living in or on them. And this has some very strange effects. I think we actually talked about one study looking at this in our episode on the tingler Mm -hmm. when we were talking about uh, endoparasites and fear. And I guess I I don't know if it would make sense to talk about the – uh, the internal microbiome is a parasite, but whatever, you know, symbiosis and, right. and fear. Well, sometimes the line between parasite and symbiosis is less easy to define anyway, and sometimes there is there is change over time in that relationship. That's an extremely good point. I'll come back to that in just a second. But the example from the Tingler episode was that it, it turns out that for some reason – in mice that are germ-free, if they don't have a functioning microbiome like a normal mouse would, they have inhibited fear response. Mm. They have trouble associating specific memories with a fear response. So they do not generate fear of things the same way normal mice do. Isn't that strange? That like, is, well, yeah. Why would the why would the gut flora have anything to say about you being able to learn to be afraid of things? Yeah, I mean, it, this this really gets down to like what is so important and exciting about the microbiome research mm-hmm. is that you know we were talking about this a little before we came in here. Um, it's been pointed out that like the the real importance of the microbiome, right, placing it on the same level as like an organ, seems to come online more in like the late nineties. Um, after this film, certainly. Uh, but the idea that that, uh, that microorganisms were important to life predates that. I, I saw a, like a quote from Louis Pasteur, for example, mm-hmm. who's pointing this out, that, like it's, that, that micro- microorganisms are vital for human life. Oh, absolutely. And one thing that I think is worth pointing out, I mean, there are all kinds of things that our, our microbiota do for us. One thing is uh, related to you talking about the line between parasitism and, and just an endosymbiosis. Mm-hmm. Our immune systems are trained by constantly being in interaction with the microbiome. Uh, And so there are tons of 
you know, uh, microorganisms in and on our body that are not harmful to us, but they live in a kind of uneasy alliance with an immune system that they are managed by. Right. And that's a lot of what our immune system does. Our immune system is not just, you know, fighting the flu when you get infected. It's also managing the body's relationship with its microbiota. Yeah, so it's not it's not just say you know the Roman legion sent out to conquer territory or to fight an adversary. It is the it is a, a, a like a police force. Yeah. So uh, looking around a little bit about this, like, obviously the scenario of all your microbiome being teleported out of you is not you know realistic. Uh, no, and you would not want that to happen. Right. But I do wonder, like, is that something that would just pretty much be immediate death. I mean, is it something you could survive? Well, you know, I was looking at a, an article that deals with this a little bit uh, titled Life in a World Without Microbes by Gilbert and Neufeld, published in PLOS Biology. And uh, the authors are mainly dealing with really an even you know, you know, larger scenario. They're looking at what if all the, um, you know, um, the microbiological um, life, all, all the bacteria on Earth were to just perish, what would happen? That would not be good. That, it, would, it would not be good. But they write that it would, quote, be false to claim that macroscopic life cannot exist without microbes. However, although life would persist in the absence of microbes, both the quantity and quality of life would be reduced dramatically. So they write that humans could get by fine without microbes, certainly for a few days. We probably wouldn't even notice it. And, uh, you know, we would continue to be able to eat and digest food, they point out. But uh, their main focus, of course, on this is the idea that all the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the microbiotic uh, population of the world would be wiped out. And if that were to take place, they think it would lead to societal collapse in about a year uh, with pockets of humans surviving for perhaps centuries after that. So, you know, generations of humans would continue to live on, but that uh, ultimately they would probably die out as well. Every single natural ecosystem depends on microbes. Yeah. And without their activities, every ecosystem would begin to break down. Yeah. Now, as for the individual brundle, the um, – what the uh, – the notobiotic brundle, mm-hmm. um, it, it seems like he would, he would probably be fine. He might even feel pretty good but uh, – at first, but he would, he would almost certainly need to repopulate his body with, uh, with microbiota. Uh, you know, and, and we see examples, of course, of cases where people say uh, have part of their uh, gut flora wiped out by antibiotics mm-hmm. um, or some other condition. They're able to, uh, to, you know, to use something like a fecal transplant, for example, to reintroduce the necessary uh, uh, microbes into the gut. And, of course, there are other, you know, like probiotic uh, techniques as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't think his condition would be hopeless uh, or anything. Uh, probably would not make an interesting movie. Uh, would not be healthy to stay that way. Right. Again, I mean, it would probably have some d- drastically negative effects on the immune response. Right. So certainly, if he was like, "Oh, I feel great," and I'm, you know, I'm glad I got all those uh, microbes out of my body, and then he were to like say, "Do it on a weekly basis," uh, that would not be good. All right. On that note, we're going to take another break. But when we come back, I want to discuss a little bit. We spent a lot of time already talking about what could go wrong with teleportation, and certainly that is kind of the the, the central uh, exploration of the film itself. Mm-hmm. But after the break, I want to talk about what could potentially go right. <laughs> All right, we're back. All right, so we were talking about how in the Fly remake, when Seth Brundle, Jeff Goldblum, 
uh, first comes out of the telepod. The first time he teleports himself, he thinks that it has done something wonderful for him. Yes. Uh, we, we compared him to somebody on cocaine, just like thinking, I am a golden god. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he's just completely renewed, full of optimism. He's just, he's, he's just on fire. He's also, though, I mean, it makes him aggressive, unreasonable, manic. Yeah, and, uh, and increasingly so with time. Yeah. Know? Uh, but it, but at first he's convinced that this has been – I mean it's been kind of a plasma pool baptism. He's been reborn. And you know when he's – again, when he starts uh, accusing um, uh, Ronnie of, of not being you know, into the idea, you know, he's saying, oh, you're afraid of the plasma pool. You're afraid to be destroyed and remade in it. You know? uh, and in this kind of you know, echoing uh, you know, religious concepts of rebirth, of death mm-hmm. and rebirth and, and renewal. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it would be interesting to discuss this a little bit. Like how how could a teleportation scenario like this potentially leave you feeling like you're a new person or a renewed person? But I think one of the, the other things to look at is, okay, certainly I think the most likely scenario, again, assuming the teleportation goes off flawlessly, no fly parts, no merging your body with an E. coli or anything like that. You just emerge – 100% what you were before except you feel different. You feel renewed. And, uh, and and I think, you know, this is a case where clearly Brundle need not actually be any different to feel differently, you know. Uh, just look to examples of, uh, of religious rites, of baptism and faith healing, for example. The telepod experience might work absolutely perfectly, which means you're no different than, uh, you know, when you emerge on the other side than when you'd, uh, uh, you know, first climbed in. And the same could be said when you were, say, baptized at a church or when you're touched by a faith healer like a televangelist or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, outside of, you know, obviously you could be introduced to some new microbes in either of those cases, in any of these cases. But other than that, you're still going to be pretty much the same, but you could feel elated. You could even feel like your pain has been relieved or your body has been healed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, naturally as humans, we encounter physical illnesses and we encounter, uh, you know, psychological barriers of varying form, origin, and resiliency. And depending on what the issue is, you know, we have a great number of science-based treatments and cures. Uh, we have powerful psychological tools as well. But we also readily engage in practices that rest on, you know, many times very shaky scientific ground or they just fall just flat into the domain of ritual and religion and superstition. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of us do this. Uh, there are varying stats on this, I think. But one one stat I was looking at came from a 2016 Baylor University epidemiology study. They found that nearly nine out of ten Americans have relied upon healing prayer at some point in their lives. Now, most of these individuals uh, do so alongside actual medical care. Um, and I've seen cases where embracing both has been argued to help push medical care in, say, highly religious places. Um, but uh, this particular study didn't tackle the perceived success of of healing prayer, mm-hmm. uh, though a lot of studies have weighed in on this question, some quite controversially. Uh, some uh, some critics in the scientific community have, have urged the end of clinical trials for, quote, highly implausible treatments. Um, because, you know, well, you can argue that there, there, there may be room for some alternative medical treatments to actually work for reasons that we don't quite understand yet scientifically, mm-hmm. you know, be it some sort of, uh, you know, rare um, uh, herb that's used traditionally somewhere and maybe scientists just haven't explored it enough to see uh, if it actually has some sort of, uh, of an effect. Um, and, and you can argue that some rituals have psychological virtue for a variety of reasons, such perhaps you know perhaps they have elements of mindfulness 
to them, and that, that's useful. Uh, but a lot of this stuff ultimately ends up working to some degree because of the placebo effect. Sure, and that's one thing where I think even if you believe, say, in some cases, prayer works, like intercessory prayer changes outcomes, you would you would have to still acknowledge that in some cases it's also going to be due to placebo effect, and you aren't always going to know which is which. Yeah. Or like we know the placebo effect happens either way. Yeah. But then the weird thing about the placebo effect is you also have to kind of – you have to believe in it for it to work. Right. Um, or you have to believe in the thing that is working via the placebo effect. You can't just I, – I mean I don't know. I get – if you could just believe in the placebo effect and just be like, oh, mighty placebo effect. Uh, <laughs> heal my, my body pains. Uh, but uh, anyway. Well I, was, well, I mean there there are some things that I would say are um, – that are going to have placebo-like implications that transcend just your your personal cognitive uh, beliefs or awareness. Like mm-hmm. uh, one example I would use is that you, you talk about faith healing scenarios uh, and how sometimes people go to a faith healer, get hands laid on them, and they actually feel better. They're like, my pain went away. Uh, oftentimes it returns soon thereafter, Mm -hmm. but it does really seem to go away for a short time. And I would say something that's probably going on in a lot of these cases is a high – is a powerful social effect. Absolutely. You're you're in a group with a lot of people and you are feeling profoundly socially included for a moment. All these different people paying attention to you and caring about your problem, that that is a profound and somewhat rare situation to be in. Yeah. I mean and in some of those cases too, people are going to tell you it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Even if it's it's maybe not going to be okay, but sometimes nothing helps in the short term like a soothing voice telling you that, right? Right. Um, I mean, I I bet almost everybody listening has had the feeling of like you're worried about something – something in your body and you go to the doctor and it's just like the, as soon as the doctor tells you it's okay, your complaint just vanishes. Yeah, yeah I've, I've had that experience. Where, and then later someone says, well, what did they say? And they're like, I don't know. I kind of stopped listening after they said everything was all right. You know? uh-huh. Or it, like it, it didn't – like I was so wrapped up in just the initial uh, explanation that I, I didn't soak all the information in. Uh, so at any rate, uh, we're, we're not going to go into excessive detail on the placebo effect. We've discussed it um, in more depth in the past. But uh, for this episode, I was looking at Great Expectations, the Evolutionary Psychology of Faith Healing and the Placebo Effect by one Nicholas Humphreys. And uh, I, I thought he made – for one thing, he made some concise points about this entirely inward experience. Uh, he also shared a wonderful uh, quote from Plato at the beginning that can be applied to – our understanding of the placebo effect. Uh, Plato wrote, I said that the cure itself is a certain leaf, but in addition to the drug, there is a certain charm, which if someone chants uh, when he makes use of it, the medicine altogether restores him to health. But without the charm, there is no profit from the leaf. (laughs) Well, that would be a very good point. It would not be helpful to slip somebody placebo pills. Right. In order for a placebo medication to be effective, the person needs to be aware that it's being prescribed and and to take it. Yes. You can't do the thing you do to the dog where you like stick the tick pill in a bunch of peanut <laughs> butter or something. Exactly. Yeah. Humphrey's uh, uh, stresses that for, for the placebo effect to work, the patient has to be aware of the treatment. They have to believe in the treatment due to experience or reputation. They have to expect improvement improvements afterwards, and then these exper- these expectations influence the patient's capacity for self-cure. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to bring it back to Brundle, uh, you know, Brundle can't just be 
slip through the telepod in his sleep. He's knowingly going through it. He knows what is going to happen, that his body is going to be taken down and then reassembled. And then you know, either you know, proactively or retroactively begins to uh, uh, assign certain um, you know, ideas of, of rebirth to that equation. Where does all that language come from when he starts ranting? It's as if he – I mean he's ranting quickly about the plasma pool and everything. It's like he's already had these phrases kicking around in his head. Right. Yeah. He's been thinking about it. He just hasn't been ranting about it to his, um, uh, to his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in this paper, Humphreys ultimately explores the idea that was proposed by others that the placebo effect we, we see today, uh, you know, our seeming tendency to experience it and its use in traditional healing rites throughout history. History means that the placebo effect may have been subject to strong pressure from natural selection. Hmm. Humphreys contends that uh, the placebo effect is, is probably not inherently adaptive because sometimes it is also maladaptive, uh, but that evolution may well have helped shape a talent uh, in humans for, quote, a tradition of self-deception and delusion. Because he points out that if, if you're feeling back pain and then you take some snake oil and you feel better afterwards uh, without, you know, obviously without actually healing the underlying condition, uh, you're missing the importance of the pain mm-hmm. because, quote, your back pain was designed by natural selection to protect you. Right. It's uh, warning you something is wrong and like don't keep putting pressure onto, on that foot or something. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought that was an interesting point. And, and it was – it's interesting to think about – um, you know the role of natural selection to what extent it might have played in the placebo effect and in our, our ability to self deceive about uh, about the curative properties of various uh, non curative methods well obviously our brains have evolved to to be easily deceived in certain scenarios and it's interesting to study what those scenarios are and try to figure out what evolutionary pressures would have driven that yeah so obviously one way they work is Sometimes we can generate a kind of confidence that overcomes negative physiological feedback. Yeah. Uh, and there, there must – I mean you can imagine scenarios where that's also adaptive. Obviously, you don't want to just be ignoring pain because pain's useful information. But on the other hand, you want the body to have some kind of override mechanism for say right. when uh, maybe maybe your foot's in pain and you shouldn't be putting pressure on it. But uh, there's a tiger and you got to run right now. Obviously, it would not be advantageous for the body to just insist on you staying put even in that scenario. And there might be other scenarios other than like immediate physical danger. There might be cases where there are social signals, social cues that override our natural physiological feedback mechanisms. Absolutely. So I think, again, coming back to the Brundle scenario, you can well imagine someone going through a telepod uh, uh, situation, teleporting their body, being destroyed and remade, and then feeling renewed about it, even if nothing has changed. They're still the same baseline person they were before. Like, I, I'm wondering, like, surely this idea has been explored in science fiction before, like maybe even in Star Trek fiction. Like, does someone get obsessed with using the teleporter? They're like, I'm feeling a little down. I'm going through the teleporter. We're just going to reset for the day. Like, that's better than a quick shower or a power nap, right? But for the rest of the episode, I thought we might explore just a few, you know, relatively briefly, I think, um, how going through the teleporter could potentially actually change you, could actually, uh, you know, alter, say, your your mind and your mood. Okay. So this made some kind of physical change to the body and, and now you are – now Brundlefly is different. Right. 
Yeah. So I, th- I think one way to look at it, of course, is neurological uh, because, again, the, the complexities of teleportation are, are again, just fantastic and, uh, and, and, and not really realistic compared to, you know, our understanding of science. Uh, but like how do you imagine just the, the, the moving of one mind state from, from here to there, from my brain uh, to the other teleporter? Well, it uh – Teleportation naturally invites questions about the connection between the mind and the physical brain. Yeah. Uh, because, again, you know, we were talking earlier about the idea that teleportation would almost certainly kill you if it could actually be done. It probably can't even be done. But right. imagine you could be destroyed down to, you know, every last atom disassembled and then rebuilt as a perfect copy somewhere else. What reason do you have to believe that your consciousness would be continued yeah. there instead of it's just, you know, lights out? Yeah, this gets um, into the whole ship of Theseus uh, situation, right? Is, yeah. the, is the copy the original, uh, et cetera? Yeah, and we've talked about this in uh, previous episodes with like the uh, Donald Davidson Swamp Man thought yes. experiment. Uh, where, you know, you are, imagine you are struck by lightning in a swamp and atomized and then nearby a, uh, a tree gets struck by lightning that rearranges its atoms in a way that just happens to be an exact copy of you down to including all of your memories and everything. Davidson's question was, is that still you, even if it goes and recognizes all your friends and all that? But that those atoms, that body has never actually met your friends before. It's just a coincidence. Yeah. And I guess another question to add on, I don't think Davidson addresses this, is is there any reason to think that your consciousness would continue in that other thing? And I don't know if we have any reason to say it would. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm glad you brought up the lightning because okay. cause this brings, brings me to the next point I wanted to make is that assuming you're the same person in telepod B that you were in telepod A and mm-hmm. assuming that for the most part there are no changes, uh, one way that you could see like an, an alteration in, in mood or personality is if there was some uh, imperfection in the copy. Say it, mm-hmm. it essentially damaged your brain in some, uh, in some fashion in reproducing you on the other side. And uh, and we have you know plenty of examples of of this in science. We've discussed numerous cases on the show before where brain injuries and alterations to the brain can impact mood. And one of my favorite, uh, and and also I think it's great because it's kind of it's essentially a positive tale of this sort of thing, uh, is the 1994 case of Dr. Tony Cesoria, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who was electrocuted in a lightning strike, and then afterwards began to hear music in his head and developed a, uh, what has been described as a, an insatiable desire to learn to uh, uh, to learn listen to the piano and learn to play the piano and then he eventually became a composer and a performer Wait, did he die? Did no. he die in these? Oh, no, okay. no, no. He's he's very much alive still. Oh, okay. Yeah. D- wait, I have a question. I may be using this word wrong. Does electrocuted necessarily mean you died? Ooh, now this is a good question. Perhaps I'm using the word wrong. Oh, perhaps I've been using it wrong. Hmm. I don't know. I always assumed electrocuted means dead. But. Well, just in case, to be sure, he was uh, he he suffered an electric shock uh-huh. via lightning strike. Yes, did not die. But afterwards, yeah, he heard music in his head. He wanted to play the piano. He learned to play the piano. He became a composer. Uh, and and Th- he, That's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's written books, I understand. He's, he's what's uh, sometimes referred to as an acquired savant, mm-hmm. someone who exhibits extraordinary abilities after sustaining central nervous system damage or disease. 
Now, of course, this is not the only case of somebody going through a, a, say, a large electrical stimulation of the nervous system and coming out of it feeling better. This is actually a – I know it, electroshock therapy gets a bad reputation in fiction and stuff. Mm -hmm. But for some people, it is actually a very helpful intervention for, uh, say, uh, depression that resists other treatments. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes there are brain states that are very negative where uh, electroconvulsive therapy, applying an electric current to the brain – causes some kind of internal reset that gets people out of negative mental scenarios. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you could you could imagine, I mean, as long as we're imagining teleportation, yeah. you know, you can imagine a, a situation where in recreating the brain or in the process of the brain coming back online in pod B, uh, that you essentially have, uh, it's like an electroshock to the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, of course, there are plenty of other examples of people whose moods, personalities, and cognitive abilities have been impacted, in, in many cases negatively impacted, uh, by changes or injuries to uh, to the brain. So, uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of room for that scenario to, to take place, again, if, if you actually had teleportation technology. Uh, and, and then uh, to come back to the microbiome, uh, I think that's another place to consider. So uh, assuming that you don't have your entire microbiome uh, fused with your genetic code, mm -hmm. assuming that your microbiome is not dumped out into another telepod uh, left to just sort of melt on the, the floor and have to be scrubbed up by the, the telepod scrubber. Um, what a job. Yeah. Uh, imagine like what else could happen, right? Like what if it just readjusted your, your microbiome? Uh, to a certain degree, because we know uh, we're, we're still learning more about this, but we know that the microbiome has uh, has an impact on our uh, on our personality, on our moods, on our, our cognitive mm -hmm. ability. Like its 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 roots run deep. Yes, and there are ways to have a healthier or less healthy microbiome. Uh, I mean, again, we, we already referenced uh, fecal transplants. Mm -hmm. Th this is an actual cure for some diseases. Yeah, so you could potentially you could have a situation where okay the teleporter didn't quite know how to, how to handle the entire microbiome some things made it through some things were left out i don't want to even explore the possibility of some individual microorganisms being fused into all new microorganisms mm -hmm. uh, because the lord knows what that would consist of but um, but you could imagine where you might emerge with maybe an improved microbiome by pure accident in the same way that not everyone that is struck by lightning turns into a, a piano virtuoso, you know, but you could have a situation where you clearly have a situation where at least one person was and you could, I guess, conceivably have a situation where one person survived a teleportation and came out on the other end with improved microbiome and maybe a, you know, improved health or even mental health due to it. You know, I know I've read in uh, looking at the downsides of when he comes out. So he comes out feeling very purified, but he's also a jerk. You yeah. know, he's like he comes out being uh, aggressive and manic and stuff. And uh, I know I've read about imbalances in the gut microbiome of dogs possibly leading to aggression in dogs. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was looking around a little bit about like other things that can adjust your microbiome. Like a, uh, one that's of course being studied is how space travel can change your microbiome. Mm -hmm. And the most obvious factor, of course, is radiation. But uh, one of the studies I was looking at was, was was saying, okay, well, radiation accounts for some of what we're seeing, but uh, we think it like microgravity is playing a, a role as well. So, uh, and then other environmental um, conditions that they're still you know figuring out. So. Mm. 
Yeah, it's just such an amazing revelation to, again, just to come back to the, the power of the microbiome and, and just how, how close it is to us, how it is essentially like an organ. You are a person, but you're also a world. Yeah. You're an environment. Your body is a wonderland. Yeah, that's what's in the plasma pool. All right. Well, hopefully we gave everybody some, some additional food for thought on uh, the fly and on teleportation. And uh, we didn't even get into some of the things people were probably expecting, like discussion of fly anatomy and feeding by vomiting up acid on things. Uh, but who knows? Maybe we could come back and do that in the future. We also didn't uh, talk about the Simpsons episode. Oh, is it fly versus fly? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, it goes to great places. I love it when uh, Homer drags one of the telepods <laughs> in front of the toilet and tries to, I think, avoid climbing the stairs. By, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, lots of reckless use of the telepod, uh, which uh, I enjoy. All right. So let us know what you think. Are you a big fan of uh, the original Fly? Are uh, you a fan of uh, Cronenberg's Fly? Uh, are you, like me, disappointed that Cronenberg has not uh, gotten to make his sequel to The Fly? He apparently wrote a screenplay and everything. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And uh, Well, wait. There was a The Fly 2. I've never seen it. Oh, well, The Fly 2 is, is a gross monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not – it's certainly not as – contemplative as uh, Cronenberg's original. Mm -hmm. But if you go into it just expecting kind of a big monster movie um, with some teleportation shenanigans, uh, you know, it's it's entertaining in its own right. But uh, Cronenberg has, at least in in past years, he's mentioned a script that he wrote that, and he's kind of cagey about it. Like it's, it seems like it's maybe not a direct sequel to The Fly, but it is very much about teleportation. Hmm. Uh, I don't know to what extent, like you know, merging of, um, of, of you know genomes comes into it. If there's any kind of uh, you know chimera in it at all, and, and maybe it's ultimately more exciting about you know the possibility that maybe it doesn't have have that. Maybe it's more about some of these ideas we've been discussing here in this episode about teleportation. What if it's from the fly's perspective, and it's about the horrors of becoming part human? <laughs> that would be interesting. I would I would watch that. So uh, I I still hold out hope that one day we'll see uh, – I mean I, I would love to see Cronenberg return to directing at all. I don't think he's directed in several years. But I would love to see uh, his his vision for a Fly sequel come to life. Failing that, Gina Davis could write and direct. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. I, really, ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm just – I just want more teleportation movies. That's That's all I want. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. But you'll find us wherever you get your shows these days. Wherever that is, just rate and review and subscribe. Those are the things that help us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.